Welcome to the Optimal Mindset. I'm your host, Johnny Taylor. I started this show because I am fascinated by human capabilities and performance. Why is it that certain people reach their potential and how does their mindset help them to succeed? I want to understand what are the tools, tactics and strategies high achievers use to optimize their mind and achieve greatness. In these episodes, we'll be speaking to some of my personal idols from sports and performance to discover the definition of an optimal mindset and how we can train our own minds to achieve our biggest dreams. Please follow the show on Instagram and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so we can share out the inspiring messages within each episode with a wider audience. Remember, train your mind, optimize your life. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest is Matt Common. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me and, and get, uh, getting excited about the uh, the conversation that we're about to have here. So Matt is a high-performance coach who has a master's degree in sport and performance psychology from the University of Denver. He has worked with thousands of clients, helped them build the mental skills to thrive in a stressful and challenging environment. When it comes to mindset, Matt is an expert in the field, and I cannot wait to jump in. So we really do, like I just said, we really do appreciate you being on the show. So could you dive in and give us some background about yourself and how you became a performance coach? I guess it, it all started back a while ago. I was I was 22 and I was coaching eight-year-old hockey, eight-year-olds in, in ice hockey up here in the Toronto area. And uh, really, I fell in love with it and it was, it was amazing and just like the joy and it was, it was really great. So I kind of learned at the time that you know, this is really what I want to do with my life and be not, not necessarily work with kids that young or, or anything like that, but just be around high performance, be around leadership, um, and, and really be around dynamics and things. So I, I, uh, I started, I, I just done my undergrad and started looking at some master's programs, leadership, masters of coaching, masters of sports psychology, and I found this program, as, as you just mentioned, at the University of Denver, a master's in sport performance psych. And, and lucky enough, I, I was able to get in. I applied and got in and, and moved down to Colorado for two years. And it was just remark- a remarkable two years, the best two years of my life. And, and I learned so much. And, and the professors and, and the former stu- students, my colleagues were, were fantastic. And so we, it was a very applied program we did do some research but it was mostly applied where in our first year we would shadow the second years in their applied work and then in our second year we would go out and, and work with athletes or, or performers and, uh, and work with different mental skills and, and help them pursue their goals on a on a psychological level mental level emotional level really loved it and then graduated came back to toronto and started teaching sports psychology at a college in, in the toronto area uh, kept, I was coaching hockey still, which I loved, yeah, which I'm still doing today. And I also had uh, a little portfolio, I guess you could say, of, of private practice clients. So I would have maybe, you know, not many, maybe two to five athletes who I was working with uh, in, a, in a consulting role, uh, working with them, their parents, their coaches, their teams, helping them build those mental skills, psychological skills, emotional skills. Uh, as well as just reframe a lot of adversity and, and maybe add a, a third party, kind of totally unbiased perspective. I wasn't their coach. I wasn't their parent. You know, I was kind of outside of that realm, which is which is a really valuable perspective to have sometimes. 
And so, yeah, I did, I did that for several years. I taught at the college for five years, all kind of trying to balance coaching and consulting. And then in 2019, I decided to leave the college and pursue consulting full-time. I decided to kind of move away from working exclusively with athletes, with executives. Applying all the same principles, you know, confidence, performance anxiety, not being present, jumping into the past or the future, dealing with adversity, team dynamics, leadership, all, all the same things. Um, but really how they are applied or how they manifest, of course, are different when you start working with adults rather than kids or teens. For three years, and this, you know, I, so I left, I left the college in the spring of 2019. Of course, you know, six, eight months later, COVID hits. So, uh, so everything you know, moves online and the world is very different, of course, as we all know. And so trying to navigate that and then get clients and, and do all sorts of things. And I really did enjoy it. Uh, but I found it was it, obviously as an entrepreneur, very independent, uh, a lot of solo work, uh, which is fine at times. But, uh, but I would think I was seeking a more collaborative approach again and working with people. And so uh, in April of 2022, so just about three years after I started my own shop, I guess you could say, I, I joined a company called Dream Fuel. And they're out of the US and they work with executives on all the same things that, that I've been doing. So it's great to work with the team again. The two co-founders have their master's in neuroscience. So uh, everything we do is very evidence-based, very research-based. So that's uh, that's a bit of a long story, but uh, that's kind of the last decade of what I've been up to academically and professionally. Wow, thanks for sharing. I think one thing that strikes me with what you said is the fact that when you were doing your your, your degree, it was very practical, right? We did do a little bit of research in our second year. We had a, we call it a master's project. It is basically a thesis where we would go out and, and conduct, you know, primary research and and go through the analyses and, and come up with, you know, try to find statistical significance and things like that. But by and large, the program was very applied. Now, our coursework was very, uh, again, evidence-based, very connected to research. But one of the mandates, not mandates, one of the goals of the program, I guess you could say, would be when we graduated, our professors wanted us to be very competent practitioners, provide value to clients while maintaining really high ethical standards and uh, and doing things the right way. So uh, I, I'd like to think they do a good job. And like it's like I could speak about DU for for two hours here, but uh, but just really loved it, and I think they they set us up extremely well. And I'm I'm really lucky where the work that I've been doing over the last decade is directly related to my to my education, which not everybody has, right? So I'm I'm really lucky that way. And that's a good point you raised there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. So one thing I heard you speak about when I was listening to a podcast uh, of yours the other day was this idea of expanding your comfort zone. And I absolutely love this. Could you expand on this? And how do you help your clients to, to step outside of their comfort zone? Yeah, uh, great, great question. And, and still trying to determine a, a great answer. Right? So working through it all, all the time, every day. And so <clears throat> the, you know, the, the reason why people find our comfort zone so so great is is because we are comfortable there obviously that's why it's called our comfort zone we not only is it comfortable and and ple pleasurable and enjoyable maybe but we most of us in our work or in school or in sports we provide value to people 
to others, to our team, when we are in our comfort zone, we feel confident and competent. Um, we we know the answer, so to speak. We you know we can do good work in our comfort zone, and it feels very safe there. And so uh, that that's why people have a hard time kind of jumping out of that. And so our our brains really want to keep us safe. That's how we're kind of designed. And that, that has served us extremely well as a species for a very long time. Um, but our brains also can't distinguish between a physical threat, a social threat, a, a professional threat, a financial threat. And so it kind of reacts the same way. Where back, you know, a long, 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 long time ago, when we were in physical danger, our brain would want to keep us safe, get to a safe environment, and it really not dive into that part of the woods any longer, right? Uh, keep us safe, keep help us survive. Now, most of us, I think, for the most part, luckily, uh, we don't have to deal with physical danger anymore, really. You know, uh, of course, we can talk about different opportunities and, and privilege, and, and those are important conversations. But I think for the most part, we don't have to worry about clean water, food safety, shelter, things like that as much. Um, luckily. And so um, that that the, the physical danger is off the table for most of us. And so really what it is, is, is psychological danger, social danger, you know, professional danger, things like that. And our brain reacts the same way. It keeps us safe, doesn't want us to dive into challenges. And then that's kind of why people have a, have a hard time with, with diving into it. And so I, I do try to explain that to, to, to clients and then, you know, use that kind of analogy and talk about some neuroscience with it. Um, and really also I'll, I'll ask them like, you know, what are some of the challenges you're most proud of in your life that you've overcome? And whether it's, you know, moving across the country to go to college or quitting a job you hated when you didn't know what was next, you know, whatever it might be, uh, I'll say, okay, you know, what was I like? We'll talk about it. And then they'll say, what did you learn about yourself? Or how did you grow? Or what skills would you develop? And they'll go on and on, right? And so the the times in our life that are probably the hardest, despite them being really, really not great in the moment and frustrating and emotional and unenjoyable and hard, those are the times we grow the most. And it's easy to say that looking back in the moment, it's very difficult. Um, but if we do want to be our best selves and then keep learning about ourselves and keep engaging with our relationships, with our environment in, in new ways and in really powerful ways, and we have to keep learning and growing, right? And so taking on some challenges is, is a great way to do that. And so I, I often speak with clients too about, you know, the, 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 the difference between where we are today and where we want to get to, whether that's financially, professionally, socially, with our relationships, whatever it might be, that that difference, that gap between where we are and where we want to be is risk, is understanding that I'm going to do something where I don't quite know how it's going to end. I'm going to speak up and advocate for myself, even though it makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to try to engage or communicate in a different way. Uh, I'm going to try to take on a new challenge that I haven't done yet, something like that, right? And so being able to take on uh, some little small challenges, some deliberate, we talk a lot about deliberate challenges, even as something as simple as a cold shower, right? Do something hard. It's going to help us grow in, in some ways, right? And so, and then we work our way up. So uh, that, that's kind of how I frame it. Again, I'm still working on it myself. 
and uh, trying to to understand it and, and identify areas that make me uncomfortable and and ask why first of all and then you know try to dive into some some exercises that might help that. Mm, I love that. That's so powerful, and, and I totally agree. I think physiologically, if you know you're running away from a tiger back in the day the body kind of re- responds in the same way nowadays when you get an angry email from your boss or when someone comes in and, and you know, tells you that, you know, you're doing something wrong. Like our body is hardwired to kind of fight or flight mode. Exactly. And it's, yeah, we are, we are hardwired for threat detection, right? And again, it served us very well, but in, in, in a corporate world or in an athletic world, that threat detection can really uh, hijack, I guess you might say, or, or really deter us being at our best. And so understanding that process, understanding that it's not that, oh, this kid's really emotional or this employee is not resilient. It's like, well, no, they might just not understand that process yet, or they might not be as self-aware as what what gets them frustrated. They might not have the skills yet to uh, mitigate that frustration maybe or get back down to neutral. And so just trying to yeah help clients along that journey and then develop some more self-awareness. Uh, yeah, it's it's hopefully uh, what it, what I can do. That's so cool, and I think you framed it in a really nice way as well. I think you've really done a good job with just even the way you articulate it just then. So, so thanks a lot. Um, so I know when you're working with athletes, uh, another area that you focus on is is peak performance. When you're working with these these clients, what would what does peak performance look like? Yeah, another another great question. I'll, I'll be totally candid I, I don't use that term very often if ever I don't use peak performance often uh, I, I use high performance and, and of course these terms are, are interchangeable a little bit uh, peak performance to me represents like literally a mountain peak and if you're at the top there's only one way to go you know and so we want to maintain high performance and so what what that might look like for me for a lot of it is just first of all just being present if you can really be focused on the task and detach yourself from the outcome, you're, you're probably doing it right. Uh, we, especially with athletes, but but with exec- executives as well, we often jump to the consequences of the of the outcome. If I do this well, then this. If I don't do this well, then that. You know, and we hear coaches say it all the time do or die, win or go home, now or never, right? What they're really talking about is the consequence of the outcome. If we win, we'll go to the championship. If, hey guys, if we lose, we're out of the tournament. It's like, well, are you are you distracting them or motivating them? Like what's going on here? I think coaches and bosses, a lot of managers, they may think that that type of language is motivating to people. Hey, hey, if you get this done, you'll get an incentive. Or if you don't get this done, you know we're gonna have to have a serious talk. People think that's motivating, but it's not. It's just distracting. You're not focused on the task anymore. Now you're focused on the consequences of the outcome. And so to to bring it back to your question about peak performance or high performance, for me, if you can just stay focused on the task at hand, d- detach yourself from the outcome in the moment. Of course, we all want to win. We all we're pursuing our goals. We all want to do well, of course. But in the moment, if we can just be present in the task, that to me is extremely difficult, but that's that would be what high performance is. And, and just being uh, another aspect of it maybe would be being really adaptable 
a lot of times if we're pursuing high performance, it's in really uncertain environments, chaotic environments, volatile environments. And so we, we may not, we, we might be preparing for a challenge in a certain way, whether it's a sales pitch with a potential client, whether it's a big championship game or something like that. We might be preparing for it and then training for it, getting ready for it. In my experience working with, uh, with clients, those challenges very rarely present themselves in the exact way that we've prepared for them. You know, maybe there's more people in the interview. Maybe the, the, the weather's different. You know, whatever it might be, things are unpredictable in these environments. And so being able to adjust very quickly and say, okay, I can't control that. What I can control is myself and my breathing and, you know, my, my emotions and things like that, my thoughts. And so I'm going to try to really dictate how I respond rather than the, the cue itself, you know, cause we often can't control these environments. So th those would be the two things is being present as we can on the task and being adjustable to unexpected stimuli, adversity, negatives, you know, whatever might come up. Mm, I love that. And, and it's something I often say to the, the kids that I coach in the team, like we need to focus what's within our control. And often, you know, we think that, we need to win at all costs or we need to like go out there and, and win or like beat a team. But actually like we really kind of just need to focus on the process and focus on, on the task at hand, right? Which is something that I love. I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah. Um, do you think nowadays with social media, with computers, with technology, with so much stimuli and so much information, do you think that being present is becoming harder? Without a doubt. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah, we... You know, it, yeah, the environment that most of us live in now make it hard, makes it harder and harder to be present, of course. And so that's something to, to be aware of, to guard against. We are constantly thinking about the past or the future or having our attention divided. You know, I, a lot of our clients and, and myself, maybe yourself, you know, we'll be on our computer. We'll have 11 tabs open. You know, going from the one thing to the next, playing music, you know, email to deep work to slide decks to uh, whatever, right? And not to mention text messages, social media, uh, Slack, notifications, like all these different things coming up, emails. And so we're constantly having our attention be divided and we think we're multitasking, but that's not really what it is. It's We're just task switching very quickly. And so, yeah, trying to be aware of that, trying to go for a walk without a phone, trying to go do a, you know, go to do your grocery run without your phone, trying to disconnect a little bit, go be in nature uh, and engage in some deliberate activities, you know, try to meditate, ex you know, practice mindfulness, journaling, whatever it might be, but trying to just be in that moment. Uh, yeah, very difficult in today's world, for sure. Mm. And those are some good practical tips as well, which we're going to dive into into later on in this conversation. So another thing or another area that um, I don't know if, how much you talk about this with athletes is this idea of like being in flow, like a flow state. Yeah. Is that something that you talk about and do you refer to it in that kind of way? Yes and no. We we do talk about it a little bit. Um, we We kind of, the way we frame it now is a little bit more about how do we create an environment that's, that makes it easier to get into flow. You know, it's, it's very difficult to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to try to get in the zone or I'm going to try to get into flow. 
you know, the more you try to do it, the harder it is it gets, right? And so we start to understand, okay, what's the environment like? What, where does my attention need to be? That's a big question. What am I focused on when I'm in the zone? What are the cues? You know, what am I reading? What information am I processing? What's my body like? And so we do talk uh, talk about that a little bit in terms of the, the triggers or the cues. And in, on some scale, we just talk about flow in the big picture. You know, what is it? Well, it's a it's a it's a match between your skills and the challenge, right? That's when we're at our best. And and again, it goes back to a previous question you asked about you know about risk and comfort zone and things like that. Where when we're totally engaged we are challenged. It's not easy. If things are too easy for us, we're, we get bored, we're disengaged, it's, it's not stimulating, right? And so we need things to be hard to capture our attention in the, in the here and now. Things are too hard, that's a different story. Again, we become frustrated, we don't feel progress, you know, it, it, we, we feel pointless maybe. And if things are too easy, like I said, we're, you know, we're bored and disengaged. And so difficulty, appropriate difficulty drives us into the now. It drives us into the present moment. And so being able to recognize that and say, okay, I'm going to do something a little bit out of my capabilities here, a little bit out of reach, and I'm doing it for a reason. Again, speaking about that as the environment in which we can get into flow, we talk about that a lot more. Yeah, I love the I love what you said there about this, where the challenge meets being present in that intersection. That's where you find those flow states. That's a, that's a really good definition there. Thanks, Matt. So Carol Dweck, Carol Dweck has written a lot about growth mindset. Uh, I know this has kind of been, I mean, in education fields, definitely this is something that's being kind of promoted and, and put out there. Do you have a, a definition or, or what a growth mindset means to you? And do you talk about this when you're working with your athletes and your people in the business world? We do. We do talk about it a lot. Um, the way, I mean, we could talk about a definition in terms of, oh, it's a, it's a belief system, it's a value system. The, the way I conceptualize it, and I would explain it like this when I would, would work with kids and teens, and it's still applicable with, with adults, is that it's a lens. It's how you view struggle, failure, success, adversity, challenge, hard work, effort, right? So it's a, it's a perspective. And when I used to work with younger kids or teens, I would always ask them, are you wearing your challenge sunglasses? You know, and I had to have a picture of somebody with the sunglasses on. And and so, you know, you get cut from the team or you're not playing as much as you'd like or you're not playing as well as you'd like or your coach kind of chews you out or things aren't going well at school and things are busy. It's like, again, are you viewing this as a threat? Is this some indictment on, on your competence or who you are as a teammate or who you... Or... Is it, hey, this is a challenge I can rise up to and learn from and kind of dive head first. So the way I always explain the growth mindset is, is that it's it's a lens, how you view the circumstance. Uh, and so that, you know, uh, uh, yet we do talk about it a lot with, with clients. We work on it. We try to reframe different things around self-talk. And a lot of times when we are met with hard things or we don't get the outcome that we want, we might have some negative self-talk. We work with the, the company I work with now. We work with pretty ambitious people, high achievers. You know, they're used to doing well, and and sometimes they don't now, right? They're at a position where things are hard, and so being able to handle that and uh, and and just go through that and reframe their self-talk. Sometimes they may 
think things or say things like, you know, I, I, I guess I don't belong here or I guess I'm not cut out for this. I'll never be as good as so-and-so. And they, they create these narratives. And so we try to reframe those, um, not necessarily negative to positive. We don't, we don't talk about it like that really at all, but just using some tools to reframe that self-talk. What would those, that's, that's so interesting. What would those tools be? Like if you were going to say, you said not, you're not going to try and flip the negative self-talk into positive, but what would, like practically speaking, what would you do if someone was struggling with negative self-talk? Yeah. So the two characteristics, I guess you could say, are curiosity and optimism. And so when someone says something like, yeah, I, I'm a terrible public speaker. You know, I hear that a lot. Or I'm, oh, I'm bad at meditating. Or I'm bad at when I used to work with kids a lot. I'm bad at math. Oh, I'm bad at math, right? And so, and, and listeners can think about some potential negative self-talk that they have. Chances are, there's a judgment to it. There's a critical aspect to it. I'm not as good, or I, I, I'll never be as good. I've always been bad at this, whatever. And typically, there's a finality or a permanence to what they're saying. I'm bad at math. I'm a terrible public speaker. I'll never be as good as so-and-so. These are like permanent statements with no room for improvement. The door is closed, right? So what we try to do is reframe that using curiosity and optimism. So curiosity is just about asking ourselves open-ended questions. So instead of saying, I guess I'm not cut out for this, it's what am I missing? What do I, what do I still need to learn? You know, we're, we're not dismissing maybe the poor performance, we're not saying, oh, it's okay. Don't worry. No, we're accountable. Hey, that didn't go well. Maybe my client, my sales pitch to my client, maybe I bombed it. Maybe I wasn't prepared. It did not go well. What am I missing? What, what, how, was, how can my preparation be different? What do I still need to learn? Quite open-ended questions like that. That's the curiosity piece. And then the optimism is all about making small changes in the future. So optimism is is not about um, uh, positivity and rose-colored glasses and rainbow. Like it's it's not about dismissing negatives, anything like that. Optimism is I believe I can have an influence in the future. I believe my effort matters. Optimism is all about agency. I can impact things. And so uh, instead of throwing our hands up and saying it, it is what it is. I'll never be as good as so-and-so, or I'm not kind of for this. It's like, well, no, I can learn. I can make small changes. I can make small impacts. I, can inf- I can't control things per se, maybe, but I can influence things. And so those are, those are two characteristics of, of really productive self-talk is curiosity and optimism. I think sometimes you can see people out there and they do, you know, the world is honey rabbits and fluffy flowers and it's all like super positive but if you're still struggling and if you're still in that negative mind, sp- mind space and you don't believe that then actually like do you know what i mean it's not going to shift and I, I love the fact that you you didn't you don't get your clients or you don't get who you work with to to move away from it you they still accept it and understand it but it's kind of this curious piece right that's that's really powerful and i've never really heard that before actually yeah yeah no it's it's <laughs> it's funny right uh, i've heard this term toxic positivity do you <laughs> And and, uh, and so that's not helpful either. And even really early in my career, like right after I, I graduated, I was working with a couple you know teenage athletes, and they would make a mistake or make an error on the court or on the field or whatever it might be. And I'd be like, okay, we got to reframe from negative to positive. 
And they would look at me and be like, are you effing kidding me? Like, I'm not going to be positive after a mistake. Like, it's just not going to happen. And that kept happening, kept happening. I'm like, okay, I got to keep learning more about this. So then I got into some some work and it's like curiosity opens the door to growth. You know, instead of saying I'm not good enough, it's what do I still need to learn? And, and curiosity to asking ourselves questions is like, a forcing function to solution finding. Like you literally, these questions are not rhetoric, rhetorical, you know, it's like literally reflect on them and find it out. And so you're forced to find some solutions. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's not about being positive after a poor performance. It's about learning and then, and believing that you can, you can impact things differently in the future. Mm, that's so powerful yeah thanks for clarifying that because that's something that i do see you do see a lot of right you see people that you know like think positive or like shift from negative to positive but i kind of like the the way that you've kind of reframed that is is much more much more powerful um so i know you talk a lot about athletes and you've also spoken about business people that you work with do you find that when you're working in a, in a performance environment do you find there's a difference between the athletes and the high-powered ceo of a company so Yes, yes and no. There are, of course, differences, but there's a lot of similarities too. You know, there's probably more similarities than than differences. Similarities are, you know, confidence issues, uh, performance anxiety, uh, fear of failure, inability to be present and focused more on the outcomes rather than the process or the task, team dynamic and leadership issues, of course. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of similarities how how those issues bubble up and express themselves might be different for sure um but but a lot of the content that i used to work on with 14 year old soccer players is the same content that that we work on now it, it, you know we might teach it differently of course but it's uh, it's the same science right uh so th- those are some of the similarities the the differences the two biggest differences i found in between sports and, and business in terms of performances in sports there's never any confusion as to what is practice and what is a game or what's training and what's a perf- and what's performance right no one's ever confused at a swim meet am i practicing or am i race am i competing right or at a soccer game football game basketball like whatever it might be there's a cl- very clear delineation between training and competing in some jobs, that that delineation is very blurred. You know, if you're putting together an expense report, are you training or competing? Or you know, if you're plan, if you're preparing something, if you're an accountant doing your work, if you if you're in HR, like that 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 line gets blurred. And so, what's performance and what's preparation uh, is a little bit different. It's not, in some jobs, it might be a bit a bit more clear. But, it, but in a lot of jobs, it, it, it gets kind of blurry. And then the other thing about the the other difference between sports and businesses in sports, it, basically any every sport has four seasons: preseason, regular season, postseason, off season. And of course, you know the time of year for those is different depending on what sport it is. How long each of those four seasons is different depending on what sport it is. But basically, every sport does follow that pattern, right? And in the off season, athletes can take some time off, you know, reset their body, reset their mind, 
work really deliberately on stuff that they may be, you know, scales that, that they might be lacking or, or gaps that they want to fill in and kind of do so hidden kind of underground, so to speak, their own little training area and, and they're not as exposed. And then they would start the next season or the next preseason and hopefully they've, you know, built some more skill and then, and understanding of the sport they're in and then they can perform at a higher level in business for the most part, there is no off season. You know, it's not like you can take three months off and go underground and read and, and develop these skills and, and things like it, it just doesn't work like that. Of course, there's some times of the year that are busier than others or not as busy, but it, there's, there's no off season, right? You, you can't, yeah, you can't take time off and just say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to learn for the next three months and I'm going to, I'll come back in the fall and, and uh, I'll be better for it. It's like, well, no, people have financial realities. They can take time off work and they have work to do. You know, it's, it's, you know, so, so those are the two biggest differences I've, I've found. And did that change your approach that you would make? Because obviously like when working with an athlete, they've got three months to go and work on something, whereas a business person isn't going to have time to implement some of the tools that you give them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And no, I mean, I, I would say that w with, with executives, we do talk a lot more about stress management or emotional regulation than, than maybe we did with athletes. It, it came up a lot with athletes as well. But typically that athlete who's maybe having a hard time dealing with their emotions, it like it only impacts them, maybe their team or something like that. But if you're an executive and you have a partner and you have kids and you have a mortgage, like there's obviously more variables and potentially more at risk. And so it, it can be more difficult. And so I think the risk of being overworked and under recovered, the risk of burnout the risk of being overstressed is is higher for executives, uh, especially you know you might have young kids and your sleeping patterns are different or you're up late working or or whatever right and so being able to balance just the the everyday factors of life with a family with a mortgage all those things so um, yeah we we do implement probably a lot more emotional regulation tools. Mm, perfect, and that actually leads us very nicely to our next question. Um, so what realm do you think these tools, such as maybe mindfulness or meditation, I know you do a lot of visualization as well. What role, what role do you think these play in helping people to be at their best? I think they're absolutely critical. I think they're crucial. Anything that you can do that will help increase awareness, self-awareness. I think is, is critically important. So whether that's a, a meditation uh, mindfulness practice, journaling, even just deliberate breathing or deep breathing exercises uh, can be really powerful. You know, I talked just just before about our overstimulated environments that we all live in right now. We're always, you know, I had one client who made me laugh a couple months ago. She said, you know, all day I'm on a medium screen. So sometimes I'll take a little break to look at a small screen. And then at night I reward myself and then I look at a big screen. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's basically what most of us do. Right. So, uh, yeah, she made me laugh at that. And, and that's basically how a lot of us, uh, what our environments are like. And there's, you know, a lot of us are multi screening. We might have our phone and our computer, or we might be watching TV with our iPad in our lap or something like that. So, it's again, again, we're dividing our attention all the time. And so, anything we can do with very low stimulation like that, 
in, and not only like not screen time, I'm talking about lying down, closing our eyes, either breathing, visualizing, again, a mindfulness practice, meditation practice, whatever we can do to give our brain a bit of a reset, a, give our mind a bit of a, a break. It, it, you know, for me personally, and I think from what we've seen with our clients, it's very re-energizing. It's, it gives people clarity. They, they often use words like grounded, centered, uh, more stable clarity, you know, things like that. So if we all did it more, I think it would be, we'd all, you know, handle the stressors of life differently. I'm the same way. I'm trying to keep finding, you know, keeping, trying to find ways to, to keep consistent with that. But I think it's, yeah, to, to go back to your questions, critically important. I kind of have a follow-up about, about visualization. So when you're working with maybe an athlete or a, a business person, would the visualization be doing the task? Would it be achieving the goal? Would it be, I know some people do visualization where they visualize like a challenge and they visualize themselves overcoming it. Like what would your practice look like? Uh, most likely all of the above. And so we, we definitely, you know, we kind of start with the, the outcome they're pursuing, the goal they, they want to achieve. That is what most people think of at first, you know, they, they want to envision themselves on the podium, so to speak, you know, achieving the goal. And so we'll, we'll paint those details in and then, you know, what, what will that feel like? Where will you be? Where, how do you want to celebrate? What's going to go on there? Who are you going to be with? All that kind of stuff. But then a, a, probably a, a bigger section of, of the exercise is, okay, what are the day-to-day behaviors you have to do to get there? And so going to bed early, eating right, you know, training, journaling, you know, working on my skills, being really consistent, you know, all, wh- whatever they are, uh, we'll start painting those in as well. And then we try to help them envision themselves going on the day-to-day. And the, the, the outcome is just kind of the byproduct. And so we try to build that pattern, mental rehearsal, whatever term we want to use, but we can, we can rehearse that, let's say. And then when the time comes to go to bed early, if we're using that example, like we've already kind of predetermined what we want to do. And we've already seen ourselves and felt ourselves make that decision as as simple as that is, oh, go to bed early. Um, But that's, that's one thing that we we try to do and then your the last part of your question about challenges we do incorporate that maybe not at first but uh we might incorporate some small challenges in the in the first couple of visualizations and then there might be a, a big thing that people are trying to overcome and so as they become more familiar with with imagery or visualization and the whole process um, then we can add in some more negatives or some more adversity challenges things like that and they can see themselves overcoming it and do you do you ever find that people find visualization hard like some people they come to the practice and they find it challenging or the most people kind of find it okay like most people if if we if we do the prep right and and we're being good coaches and stuff i i think most people can get into it there are there are some you know clients who who do find it difficult to you know s- s- whatever it might be smell the grass see the sunshine you know all these vivid details we try to I- embed in there they do have a harder time with it they're just maybe not as sensory 
or not as expressive or, or something like that. So there, there are some that it might take a bit more work or maybe some are more skeptical about it too. So trying to, to connect it back to their goals and make it really relevant for them. Um, so there's, there's a couple of different reasons why there, it might be a little bit of a challenge at the start. Yeah. And I think visualization is such a powerful tool. So, I mean, I'm super glad that you're using it with your clients. That's, that's amazing. So one thing that has come up across all the conversations that I've had, um, is this idea that the people I, I interview generally have a sense of like deep purpose or like a why for their job or their role or their success. If I ask you what's your why for your role as a performance coach, what would your why be? Uh, to bring people together in pursuit of hard things. So that's kind of what I try to do with my with my consulting work. That's what I try to do with my coaching, even with my friends, even socially. Sometimes I'm the one I'm like, hey, let's sign up for this half marathon as a group or let's go on this hike or like, let's travel here, let's do this. And so for whatever reason, I don't really know why, but that is, that is my why is to bring people together in pursuit of hard things. And so if I can be a small part of a team or a group of people's pursuit and achievement of something really difficult and, and help them along the way or help galvanize them or, or, or whatever, give them some tools or some skills, that is extremely rewarding for me. And so, you know, that's a, that's a pretty clear why, right? To bring people together and pursue hard things. You can probably tell, like I've, I've, been through some exercises and then reflected on that. It's like, what, I, what do I want to represent in my life? What's important to me? Uh, so I've had that why for about maybe six or seven years now. And that's, that's, uh, that's what I try to do. One thing that strikes me that really aligns with what you do as your job, right? Like that why is like bang on with the role that you do as a coach. That's, that's incredible. That's actually really cool. The next question is obviously this podcast is all about optimal mindset and what does that mean? So Matt, what would be your definition of an optimal mindset? Again, a great, a great question. I, I think as we talked about earlier, you know, maybe similar to the to the high performance question, being present as as much as we can, being able to pay being able to pay attention to what we're doing, understanding that the environments that we operate in are uncertain and chaotic, potentially unpredictable. And so can we still, can we still perform in those environments? Can, and the other, the other thing too is, can we still express ourselves the way that we want in those environments? Sometimes when the environments are really hard and things go wrong or there's unexpected, whatever we might say or do something we regret, we might blow up, we, we might shut down. You know, and we're not really expressing ourselves in the way that we're proud of. And so it's like, can I can I still live by my values or live by my why? Can I still pursue my purpose when things are really hard? And so that would if if we can do that, I would say that's a pretty optimal optimal mindset. Mm, what a great answer. Yeah, I love that. What a what an awesome answer. I mean, I'm blown away with how much information you've given us here and just how I practical and like how much wisdom you have like you you really are like super super inspiring um, i'm wondering if you have any books or resources or anything that you could suggest maybe that someone could go away and read and you think would help them it, to achieve their goals yeah i mean my two of my favorite authors are daniel coyle and stephen kotler so my my two favorite books in this realm would be the talent code by daniel coyle 
outstanding, great in terms of learning and progression and skill acquisition, things like that. Highly recommend it. And then my probably my favorite book ever, maybe of my whole life, but especially in, in terms of performance psychology, is The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. Remarkable. Uh, the first couple of chapters, I was a little unsure because it's about uh, high-risk sports, uh, surfing, skateboarding, uh, jumping out of, you know, jumping out of planes, things like that, which I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not into. But uh, but then it really gets into the science of things and, and again, getting out of your comfort zone and, and pattern recognition and information processing, all these things are, I find super cool. So those two books would be great. I mean, in terms of podcasts, there's uh, Andrew Huberman, of course, is doing great work and making science really accessible for everyone. Michael Gervais, uh, Finding Mastery is the title of his podcast. I really like Dr. Sandra Kampoff, uh, High Performance Mindset is the title of her podcast. There's tons of stuff, tons of stuff, uh, great stuff there, great guests. So those would be three. I'm trying to think what else. I mean, any, any, uh, Daniel Coyle also has a book called The Culture Code, which I would recommend. And then Stephen Codler has a couple of different books. The Art of Impossible, kind of a how-to guide for more flow in your life. So that would be a, a good starting point about this kind of stuff. Uh, amazing. I was actually reading uh, that Stephen Kotler book the other day, and I just I love how it's kind of like got neuroscience kind of like backed into what can sometimes be a little bit like esoteric and like spiritual kind of yeah. things. So he's very like neuroscience and like science backed to, yeah. to if that makes sense. So yeah, that's a really good recommendation. You're actually the first person to recommend that book, so our listeners yeah. should definitely check it out. For sure. Um, I, I would say something too, before we go on, I, I just wanted to talk about our, the why question a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned, I've, I've done some some reflection on that. And and that's, I think, why you know I have a, a pretty clear purpose uh, right now anyway. And I would just say, if, if people want to go through that type of reflection, a really good framework to, to go through that is starting with the word to, then a verb, and then the impact you want to have. So again, mine is to bring people together in pursuit of hard things. So the word to, then my verb is bring, I guess you could say. Uh, and then the impact is people together, hard things. Those are things that I value. And so if you think about, you know, Google the, on a company, their, their purpose is to organize all the world's information, right? To verb impact. Right. And so just that that's one template that that people can start using. There's many different templates, of course, but that's one that that I've used and one that I really enjoy is nice and simple and one that uh, that we do work on with clients. So two verb impact. Really practical and really useful, which um, kind of leads us to the last question here. And I know this interview has kind of been littered with all sorts of practical information and there's so many like takeaways. I think I'm going to have to listen to this a few times to to really grasp it. But if you could give three actionable steps that someone might do to maybe develop a more optimal mindset, what would those three steps be? The first thing to, that comes to mind is to take time to engage in one of those really low stimulating activities. So whether it's meditation, practicing mindfulness, deep breathing, deliberate breathing, taking five to 10 minutes a day to just close your eyes whether you're seated, lying down, whatever whatever you're, you're doing physically, close your eyes and just be 
the the physiological effects of that decrease heart rate, decrease blood pressure, decrease cortisol. Like there, there's a lot of physio downstream physiological effects, but again, as I mentioned, mentally and cognitively, just a lot of clarity, decreased stress, feeling more centered, feeling a bit more balanced throughout the day. And there's there's lots of resources, right? Any there's tons of apps and podcasts, and YouTube channels. Uh, there, there's a lot of different things. So finding one way to to do that consistently, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that. Five to ten minutes a day. Instead, honestly, three, start with three. Three minutes a day, right? There's there's research that would indicate three minutes is enough to start some of these effects. As little as three minutes. Uh, another one would be journaling. I know that's difficult for a lot of people. It's difficult for me. It doesn't come naturally to me. It's not, you know, writing and taking time for that is not a a fluid, easy thing for me. I have to work at it and I'm not as consistent as I like. But externalizing our thoughts and our emotions is extremely powerful. And we all know that just from like having somebody to talk to. Very helpful, of course. Why is that? Because we're externalizing, whether we're speaking to somebody else, someone we really trust, or we're writing it out. When we speak or write, we have to follow the laws of language and grammar and things like that. We have to add clarity to our thoughts. Sometimes we have thoughts in our mind or feelings that are abstract. Maybe they're kind of disconnected a little bit. They, they come and go. They're fleeting. But when we write them down, A, we make them a bit more permanent and, and we can understand them a bit further. And B, it's just, it's just uh, we, uh, as I said, we're kind of forced to follow the rules of language. And so it, there's more detail to it. There's more, there's, there's more, uh, what am I trying to say? Just more depth and more richness to that experience. So that would be one is journaling and, and not, hopefully not on your phone or tablet or computer, like literally with a pen and paper in a book and, and try to do that. And again, you know, some people might say, I don't know where to start. Neither do I. You can either buy journals that have prompts already, or you could, there's again, you could Google journal prompts, you know, lots of resources, or you can just ask, you know, what went well today? What didn't go well today? What do I want to focus on tomorrow? Things like that. And then go through it that way. That would be another one. Another kind of straightforward one would be uh, expressing gratitude. We've all, we've probably all heard that before. There's some new research on kind of amplifying the effects of a gratitude practice where we might say, okay, what are three things I'm grateful for today? And do that every three new things, right? Three different things we're grateful for every day. And of course that is helpful and beneficial and helps us focus on what we do have and all those great things. However, if we can add more detail as to why we're grateful for that thing or that person or that event, what's the impact they have? Why do we appreciate that? If we can add some more depth to that and make it more of a story arc rather than like a bullet point, some research would indicate that that's a, again, adds riches and depth to the experience and then amplifies the benefits. So more, again, more of a story arc, I'm grateful for X, Y, Z because, or I'm really appreciative of my partner because, or, or something like that. So again, just some, some more detail. So that's the third one. And then the last one I would say is trying to direct your attention to be more present. The, the two biggest, uh, what's the word, distractions we face are the past and the future. 
And so when we notice that, try to bring your attention back over to the present moment. And you can do that by going through your five senses. What am I seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, feeling, and really directing your attention to those things. Okay, what am I seeing? Maybe the, the sunshine coming through the window, the colors in my in the room that I'm in, the the shapes that are moving. You know, what what again, whatever it might be. What am I hearing? Maybe I'm in a meeting and I'm hearing somebody's voice. I'm not really paying attention, but I can hear their voice. Uh, what am I feeling? The hardwood of my desk, the chair I'm sitting in, the, my, the clothes on my skin, the keyboard, the, the keys on my keypad, things like that on my keyboard, I should say. Taste and smell aren't always relevant. You know, um, we could think about the coffee we're drinking or tea or water or something like that and, and same with smell. Um, but even if we're outside and we're thinking about work or we're thinking about other things we're on a walk, okay, bring it back. We see the green leaves of the tree. We hear a dog barking like, we can always use our five senses to bring us back to our immediate moments and just be there, right right then and there, be there um, versus being in the past or the future. That's such good advice. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we often, we're often either like reliving past events or we're predicting what's going to happen in the future. And I really agree. We just need to spend some time being rather than trying to get somewhere, which is, which is incredible. So Firstly, you've been uh, an absolutely incredible guest, um, filled with such wisdom, such practicality, um, and just such inspiration. So we really appreciate you joining the show. Uh, where can our listeners find out more if they wanted to find out more about your work? They can they can hop on my LinkedIn page, I guess. I, I don't do a ton of social media, to be honest. So uh, my LinkedIn page, Matt Comand, uh, you, can, you can find it. You can go to dreamfuel.com. As I mentioned, the company I, I work with now, is called Dream Fuel. They're based out of the, the Midwest United States. We have clients all over the US, some in Europe. Um, and so really, really meaningful work there and learn more about uh, our whole company and, and what we offer and things like that. So dreamfuel.com. Awesome. And we can link those in the show notes as well. So for uh, people that listen, we can uh, they can check it out. Um, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So I definitely would love to have interview round two maybe uh, one day and we could we could definitely dig into your wisdom again. That would be incredible. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and uh, yeah, I'd love to keep the conversation going, and and would love to come back one time for sure. Well, thank you so much to the listeners. Thank you for checking in. We really do appreciate it, and we hope to hear from you again soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the Optimal Mindset podcast today. We are available on SoundCloud and on Spotify. I've included all my information in the show notes for those who wish to find out more about our our guests and upcoming episodes. Remember, train your mind, optimize your life.